0: Welcome to Histórias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Today I'm joined by Dave Henderson, Professor of Humanities at San Diego's Miramar College, to discuss the land reform program of the Franco regime in Badajoz province, part of the Extremadura region in southwestern Spain. So Dave, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Foster. Okay, so our listeners may have heard of Extremadura and Badajoz, but I thought you could start off by giving us a brief overview of what the landscape in that region is like.
1: Well, so Badajoz is actually closer to Lisbon than it is to Madrid, uh, the city. The province is southwest in Spain, so it's actually north of Sevilla. So it's on this border region with Portugal. And the landscape has traditionally been sort of portrayed similarly to in... Uh, the Guadalquivir Valley where you have these big large landed estates that are worked by landless laborers. But actually in Extremadura it's a little different because the dehesa landscape is most prominent which is this mixed landscape of oaks, livestock, and agriculture. Right so you have cork, you have uh, meat products, and you have cereal agriculture primarily.
0: Okay, so in this dehesa landscape, can you just give us a brief overview of how the society is structured in order to work that a- landscape for agricultural production?
1: Yeah, so traditionally the dehesa was divided up in a series of complicated contracts. Right? So you might have a contract for the cork, right? You would harvest the cork that year, or you could have, if you were a yuntero, if you were someone uh, with a mule, and a plow, you might get your own small portion of land to farm that year or for a series of years, right? For, you know, for the harvest year. Uh, Or you can be in charge of shepherding some of the animals, right? So that was traditionally divided up, although they've been more and more converted into single use plots of land.
0: If that's kind of the basic way um, of how the society is structured, then what were some of the problems with this system by the time we get to the early 20th century in Spain?
1: Well, you have a problem throughout the Mediterranean as you approach, as you get into the 20th century. So, what you end up with is across the Southern Mediterranean you get historically high levels of land use, right? So the population, because of public health, because of who knows what other developments is growing and these countries haven't industrialized yet. So there's not you know, ample jobs available in the city. So the population in the countryside is booming, which means that more and more marginal lands are being put under the plow and farmed. And this also has to do during World War One. you know, there's a big market for Spanish products, so it was very advantageous to put more and more land into agriculture. But especially after World War One, as global food prices come down and landlords wish to take land out of cultivation and give it to more and more to animals, then you have peasant unrest. You have in Extremadura, you have Juntero unrest, in particular these people with plows. So what you end up with is this battle over what to do with the property. Cause you had these people who enjoyed these traditional contracts and some of them, let's say you had a contract for vines, right? It's essentially the life of the vine, which could be a hundred years. And then you have a landowner who says that they have that property and they wanna change the use or change the rents then you have this conflict.
0: So, were there any efforts to try and solve some of these conflicts in the late 19th, early 20th century? There were attempts at irrigation,
1: was one prominent way to try to, that was sort of the centrist way to try to deal with land reform. So the idea being, you dam up these rivers, you irrigate new plots of land, and that land redistribution sort of takes care of itself, right, because the land is more fertile, you can give it to more people, more people can make a living off of it, right? And more people will enjoy property ownership. The left-wing socialist idea was to redistribute land, to expropriate the land from absentee landowners in particular, these people who owned the land, but were thought to not farm it, not try to farm it to full capacity, or who wanted to, you made money by enjoying a monopoly, right? So the idea was okay we will take their land, we will pay for it in some forms, right? And then we will redistribute it to peasants who will then farm it. They will farm it to capacity and the Spanish economy will do better, right? And of course the landowners were very against these ideas of land reform.
0: Prior to the second republic, during the restoration period, was, was there actually much of this reform that actually went on or did it pretty much stay the same? Uh, there was little. There was little serious
1: systemic structural reform. But there were, you know, there were attempts at irrigation, right? So mm-hmm. beginning with, you know, around 1900, with these national water plants, there were calls to dam rivers and irrigate. And some of those projects were begun, although not that many were completed. Some in other, especially Aragon, there were, you know, completed projects, but not so much in Extremadura. But then there were also much more sort of local or smaller attempts to fix the problem. So. You would have, you know, price controls, maybe, you know, guaranteeing a low price for something, right? Or attempts to control rent, you know, so various ways of mitigating or making sure that Juneteros were given a certain portion of the land to farm. So there were attempts to mitigate, but nothing uh, seriously to fix these
0: problems before the Second Republic. So let's take a short pause and then when we come back we'll look more at how the Second Republic and then the Franco regime tried to offer uh, more extensive solutions to this problem. Okay, so now that we know a little bit about what the agricultural situation was like in Badajoz and what the problems with that were by the uh, early 20th century, let's talk a little bit about the Second Republic because that regime, 1931-1936, made land reform one of its top priorities. So how did this emerging democracy tackle this land reform problem in Badajoz specifically?
1: Yeah, well I think so far I haven't made clear enough how, sort of, drastic and pressing the land reform problem was. Right, especially in the national imagination. Because Extremadura was really, came to be the symbol of Spain's poverty after the Spanish-American War. Right, of this sort of failed agricultural economy that needed to be fixed to make Spain a nation equal to the other imperial nations, was the idea. And then Extremadura, with its low population density, because it was low, it didn't have a very high population, its poverty, especially in places in the north of Cáceres, right, where uh, Luis Buñuel will make a movie about this, right, so it becomes the sort of Spanish Appalachia, right, the symbol of all that's wrong with Spain. So there are, you know, the king goes on a visit, he brings, you know, journalists with him, They tour him around, he sees all the ailments, all the diseases that come from poverty. So there's this very strong image, right, which with some truth to it, but also missing a lot of truth about how impoverished and helpless all these laborers are in Extremadura. So one of the big things that's, you know, incumbent on the socialists or the socialist politicians, the left-wing politicians who make up the first government of the Second Republic, is how they're gonna fix this land reform, right? They promote the Republic, a lot of their legitimacy came from this idea that they will be the ones who will fix what's happening in Southern Spain and Southwestern Spain and these impoverished regions. And their proposal is first of all land reform, right? So redistributing land, also a series of laws to make for fair bargaining between landowners and the various either sharecroppers or renters and this measure was maybe a little more misguided but in order to keep the salaries of workers higher there was restricted movement between towns so the idea was if no longer could you just go somewhere else to look for cheaper labor right instead you'd have to pay the people who lived in your town and you have to pay them a fair price the problem was is traditionally especially in Extremadura you have a lot of mobility because people own plots of land all over the place right very scattered even the small um, uniteros and then also laborers were accustomed to moving not so much great distances but let's say between two different administrative areas in order to work so that law didn't work out as well the bargaining did seem to benefit renters more than previously and then those two laws were sort of you know supposed to be you know warm-ups for the real deal land reform. The problem was that land reform was slow. It's very hard to do a land reform. It's very hard to expropriate property even if you're paying for it. So there were surveys done of each province of how many landowners there were, how much property they owned, how was the distribution, how many landowners were absentee to try to, to figure out which farms could be expropriated. And which could not but it was a slow process so you know like edward malafakis the historian has argued that really land reform satisfied no one right it awakened this hunger in peasants and enthusiasts for the socialist party yunteros in extremadura for land that maybe hadn't even been there before right but it also intensely scared landowners right who then became more organized politically, supported right-wing groups in the Second Republic who you know were not so invested in the democratic part of the Second Republic. So his argument is that it
0: polarized and could satisfy no one. So can we say that the Second Republic, even though it had this grand project that scared some people and was not enough for others, it sounds like there wasn't actually that much land reform that actually got done. No. I mean, there wasn't... Land reform took place. The
1: land reform project started during the first biennial, the first couple years of the left-wing government during the Second Republic. It was then, you know, it was a situation where the governments during the Second Republic sought to counteract what the previous government had done. So then the land reform project was seriously neutered by the centrist right-wing government that came after. And then it picked up again during the last popular front government. And that's when land reform really accelerated. In fact, in 1936, in March, in Extremadura, there were these... I'm not... I've sort of looked around to try to figure out what... try to collect all the primary sources about what really happened. It's unclear exactly what happened, but a good number, some say like 80,000 Junteros, occupied farms in March of 1936. Whether they occupied them to farm them that year to say that hey, the landlords are, you know, purposely keeping us from working the land to demonstrate their political power, right? That's one idea. So they were occupying the farms to be like, we want to farm the land and make money this year because we're being intentionally held up. Or they wanted to own those pieces of land that they they did not think were used properly. They wanted to take ownership of them. It's not completely clear, but either way, there were forced, I don't know if forced is the right word, but there were occupations of land that were then subsequently legitimized by the popular front government mm-hmm. and so then i don't know if you would say that that land was officially redistributed but it
0: was certainly a conflict over ownership and so then of course just a few months later you have the start of the civil war and when the franquista side of the war comes out victorious They also have to take a position on this land reform since it was such an important part of the kind of the program of the uh, second republic. So how did the Franco regime try to come up with their own plan for Badajoz as a kind of a reaction to these expropriations that had started under the second republic?
1: The nationalist side in the civil war takes, I mean, they return land to landowners and Extremadura becomes actually a front in the war, although it's not a uh, very celebrated front. It's not thought of as so much as, you know, Orwell and Aragon or the taking of Sevilla or the Northern Campaign because the front is fairly settled after the first couple months of the war and the massacre in Badajoz. But what happens is land is returned to landowners although, of course, the nationalist side is practical in wanting to you know they were more organized in supplying their troops during the war and making sure that there was enough food. So they're first of all concerned with food production but in the waning years of the war and especially during the first years of the regime once it's fully constituted they take on this legacy from the Falange, the Spanish fascist party of Jose Antonio who says we will ar- we will create an alternative land reform program. We will fixed land reform but we will not engage in this radical redistribution of land that the socialists want to do. Instead we will you know a more practical land reform will take place. And to do this they create this national institute of colonization. And colonization this is not from you know let's colonize you know let's have an empire and colonize foreign places. Instead it is about settling people on farms. So for colonization It comes all the way back from the Roman Empire. It's about, okay, having people work on farms. So their idea is having a twin project of irrigation and then settlement. Mm -hmm. is their plan. In practice, this means kicking off a bunch of people who occupied land during the Civil War or the last months of 1936, and then redistributing it or giving it in long-term leases to people who they viewed as more politically favorable.
0: Yeah, so I think this idea of internal colonization is really interesting given the kind of national Catholic ideology of the Franco regime uh, more generally. So how did this project, the way that the Franco regime saw the way they were gonna do land reform in Barajos fit into what they saw as kind of their ideology for their new regime?
1: I think the Franco regime v- viewed the countryside as a threat. They viewed the countryside as this potential stronghold for socialism, Marxism, especially in the years right after the Civil War. So in order to neutralize that threat, what they did was they cut the sort of pretensions to ownership of those who were viewed as politically dangerous, but then sought to protect those who they viewed as more politically favorable. So you could participate in the National Institute of Colonization especially if you could prove that you had fought for the nationalist side in the civil war if your relatives had fought for the nationalist side in the civil war if you had a favorable recommendation from the local officer from the civil guard or your priest then you were seen as you know a much more eligible colonist a much more eligible settler and you were still you were still from this region it's not like you were settled in some cases you were settled from far away but in most cases you were settled from the region you already lived in, maybe somewhere slightly different. You might even be settled on a farm that you already worked that had been expropriated by the National Institute of Colonization, or more likely, since the National Institute of Colonization didn't expropriate very many farms until the late 1940s, more likely they would have inherited a farm from the Institute of Agrarian Reform from the Second Republic, and they would take ownership of that. And then they would essentially act as a landlord and give favorable leases to tenants who they viewed as politically favorable.
0: Okay, so it sounds like, more than anything else, it was a way to kind of reward people who had supported the nationalist side in the in the Civil War, or vice versa. Part of this kind of clean, political cleansing of the country more generally. Yeah, I mean, it definitely fits in with this early climate of the 1940s.
1: I hesitate to see it as, like, a great reward. Because, you know, you weren't going to become filthy rich from Uh being a colonist. They were geared towards people with large families who were poor but had enough capital to prove themselves viable farmers. So it was aimed at
0: creating this politically loyal population in the countryside. Okay, so we'll take another pause and then we'll look at a bit more about what the experience of colonization was like in Badajoz, and what the implications of this Francoist program were. Okay so you've given us a little bit of an idea of who these settlers were who came to Badajoz but tell us a little bit about what the experience was like of being a settler in one of these colonization projects.
1: Well the experience changed over the course of the regime quite a bit. So in the 1940s the stated target was more to settle more people, right? to get as many people as you could onto a farm. right? So the idea of these agronomists was to look at the farming practices on one farm, figure out how much it yielded per year, and see okay how many colonists can we fit on this one farm. But as we get later into the 1940s, the agronomists, the people in charge, the director general of the National Institute of Colonization start to realize that this is not the most effective approach. That they're settling people on plots of land that are too small to support a family. So what happens is they start looking for people who are a little more economically better off and instead trying to give them bigger plots of land, right? There are various classes of settler, of colonist, but the large majority they start aiming to give bigger pieces of land to. First, in the earlier 1940s, before a lot of land expropriation takes place, you're settled, you're given ownership over a piece of land that you may already farm or a farm already in possession of the INC. You may have a dwelling built nearby but you may not, but, right? Most of the time you are. Later on you'll have these much bigger projects, right? As there's a couple of laws that are passed in the late 1940s that allow the National Institute and the Ministry to expropriate larger amounts of land, irrigate and then spread them out. So you have these big towns that are built and Barajos is one of the regions where the most towns are built. So you'll have these series of settlements created around these large farms. So like Entre Rios is a big farm in Barajos. That's a singular farm with a small village built nearby. So you were given a house and then a plot of land distant from it. Some people were given a house and a piece of land right on it but those were fewer. And then you would farm the land and you would listen to instructions from the National Institute, right? If you did not listen to instructions, you were fined, you could eventually be expelled. It wasn't a good idea. So you're given instructions on how to take care of your land, what to farm, uh, how much to sell it for, right? You would give it to the National Institute and then they would sell it for you. And, you know, depending on how well you follow INC directions, and how good the instructions are they give to you, you eventually pay off the loan you have been given for your house. Right, so maybe after 20 years, there's various stages. You are a colonist where you have to listen to instructions. You are a colonist where you have a little more leeway after, you know, let's say five or 10 years. And then you eventually accede to ownership yourself, right? This was this very sort of paternalist. We will educate you and teach you how to be a viable good Francoist colonist Mm -hmm. was the idea
0: so it sounds like there was actually a lot of intervention by this inner institute in people's lives I mean did people react favorably to this or uh, was there some tension there
1: there's clearly some tension Uh you know I'm a little prejudiced because I look at you know the documentation that is left over and a lot of the documentation that is left over is fines complaints petitions But there does seem to have been a lot of tension. I think one of the clearest ways you can see this apart from the complaints is there were problems about selling the produce, especially in the 1950s. So the INC would offer a price that it thought was fair, but it might be well below market price. So there were attempts by colonists to evade uh, the National Institute. So truck drivers would be pulled over by the civil guard trying to leave you know, the area, with a bunch of pe- red peppers in the back, right, with a bunch of tomatoes. And that was because colonists were selling their, trying to sell their produce earlier so they would could save up money faster. So there was definitely conflict. There was moral supervision. Uh, there was supervision over how well you took care of your animals, right. If a cow had died, you were often blamed for it. Uh, if you were caught drinking, right, or had a bad reputation, if you, I mean, clearly if you engaged in any sort of political activities that the institute did not deem favorable. So, I don't know how much, if there was a lot of intervention, but there was certainly the power to intervene and the supervision.
0: So it seems like this almost utopian project to kind of impose this national catholic vision of, of what a rural community would be like. and. It sounds to me like the kind of thing that might not wind up working out the way people had planned it, but were they able to continue on in some form and and be successful? That's
1: what I thought too when I began my research project. I thought this was going to be another episode of large state ambition, not backed up by execution. But it turns out to be a sort of different story. I wouldn't call it a roaring success, but these communities, a lot of them are still viable communities. I mean, Extremadura is still one of the poorest regions in Spain, but agriculture is now a much larger part of its economic riches, right? It makes a substantial portion of its money from agriculture that is fueled by irrigation. And it's, I mean, anyone who was, who went to Badajoz in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s even can tell you that it's transformed a great deal right, the communities are still around. So I think that could be a possible, you know, way to see success there. But I think one of the more interesting things that carried out is maybe the project backfired in creating Francoist citizens, right, or creating uh, loyal Francoists. Instead, it's been one of the most, you know, consistently socialist, apart from the capital city, areas since the transition to democracy. So what I, my intuition tells me is what happened is that this land reform actually ended up as a model of you know, the potential of land reform that wasn't carried out effectively, right? So colonists resented the intervention in their lives, the money that they lost or the extremely hard work they had to do during the early days, but eventually enjoyed the possibility of buying and owning their plots of land and farming it. So I think it created this sort of appetite for what the government that the government could do something productive for citizens, that the possibility of land reform was there, even if it
0: wasn't carried out well. So, to conclude, how does the work that you've done on colonization change the way that we understand the Franco regime? Well, when I started on the research, and still when I look back on this project,
1: my goal was to try to figure out, did the Franco regime have any serious social programs or social policies? Because one of the arguments about why the Franco regime failed is that, or it failed to create a successor government that was autocratic or continued its ideology, right, that was fascist, was that it failed to enact any sort of social programs. That It didn't live up to its promises. So I wanted to investigate its social programs. And I thought this here is a concrete program in a poorer region that's meant to address the plight of formerly landless laborers, ostensibly, although really it was for Junteros or people that were thought to own a little bit of land. All right, so I looked at the program and what I discovered was I thought that it, it was a real social program, right? It was not just a piece of propaganda, of Some as some people have argued that the Franco regime, all of its social policies were just to advertise that it had them, but they had no real depth. I don't think that was the case. I think it was a real social program. But what I try to highlight and I think what happened was that it was a social program, but it was purposefully limited in nature. And so it was meant to create this bastion of support for the Franco regime amongst the peasantry and the peasantry originally were viewed as very threatening by the Franco regime, right? So there was this hope of, okay, let's create this portion of the peasantry that will be very supportive of the Franco regime. And we'll do that by, you know, providing support in the countryside for a select group of the population that we see as economically responsible and politically reliable. In practice, it didn't succeed. The beneficiaries of the program ended up, I think, voting for socialists in in the large majority. So I think the story that I tell of colonization is really this story of people becoming disenchanted with the Franco regime and becoming disenchanted with its programs, right? So there was this, okay, there's this real program, but it was so paternalistic, you know, almost Foucauldian in its monitoring of the colonists that ended up creating, or incompetent in some places, that it ended up creating a backlash against it, right? So I think my thesis supports this general idea of not living up to its social programs, but it also provides some depth where What the franco regime was doing was not just you know bumbling about or creating propaganda but actually this attempt to create a you know area of political support
0: so it seems to me that what was real about these programs was that they did create these big reservoirs irrigation projects new communities but they were not able to create these kind of bastions of support for kind of a national Catholic ideology that in some sense it almost went the opposite direction towards more these communities that actually wound up being more supporting of the left-wing movements as the country moved towards democracy. Exactly.
1: You know, so I think if you go to Extremadura now, you can still see the legacy of these projects with the huge dams, with the, the villages are extremely modernist in their architecture, right? So you'll see these twisting white towers or these spare, you know, white buildings that are patterned on Andalusia, on these traditional dwellings, but are actually given this sort of modern spruce up. So you can still see the legacy of the Franco regime's program. But I think what happens is that these, you know, state intervention programs actually end up creating an appetite for welfare policies. They end up creating an appetite for the welfare state even though they're meant to create this organic Francoist ideology amongst the people who live there.
0: And how about this issue of land reform in the Extremadura region because it's such a big topic in the history of 20th century Spain. What does your research have to say about that? Yeah well I think land reform you know in Spain will always be a super
1: important topic because of its role in the civil war the conflict during the second republic in terms of the mediterranean and europe in general land reform used to be a big topic of research and discussion right, there used to be this sense that you know what happened in the countryside really helped determine the course of a nation's history like or a nation's economy that's sort of fallen by the wayside a little bit but what i see my research is doing as i'm looking back over it is to create this idea that land reform wasn't necessarily for the peasants who clamored for it, wasn't necessarily about just property ownership. It was about preserving what hold they did have on the land that they had farmed because they enjoyed these complicated contracts. So what I'm hoping to demonstrate is that actually these more complicated land use contracts persisted longer than has been thought were more viable in a modern economy, and that the Franco regime actually understood the value of these more traditional contracts, which is why they created the INC. Of course, they targeted their policies at only a select group of the population, but they understood that supporting agriculture, giving some form of ownership, however limited, to a portion of the peasantry, could hold a small portion of them on the land, could serve as a form of support, and that they consciously cut the rest of the peasantry off from these forms of support. So that's what I'm hoping to demonstrate going forward.
0: Alright, well thanks so much for coming on the program, Dave. Uh, I think this has been a great window into the problem of Agrarian reform in the in 20th century Spain. Um, and I think you've shed some interesting new light uh, on the question. so thanks. Thank you for having me, Foster. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest, and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at ustoriaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter, so that you can be notified of new episodes.